2: That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
1: Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore. It's another episode. And, oh, honestly, this episode is Cracking. Um I sit and talk to Ali Cook and when I got the song list sent over up front I knew it was gonna be interesting. I did not think we would be talking ninjutsu, I did not think we would be talking BMXing and Magic. This podcast goes everywhere and we've uh, we just had a wonderful chat and I really can't wait for you to hear it. Um before we get on with that chat, um can I just make a few thank yous? I want to thank um My bud, Scroobius Pip, and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network, thank you to 76 for producing this podcast, and thanks to you lot for continuing to support the podcast, listen and send me nice messages and do the little shares and the tweets and the retweets and and all of that. It it really helps. So thanks loads um, for, uh, yeah, just being bloody nice. Um, Also, if this is your first time listening, When you get to the end of today's chat with Ali, then go and explore the back catalog because there's 360-odd episodes now. You can hear me talking to artists as diverse as Chuck D, to Fatboy Slim, to Motley Crue, to the Foo Fighters, to Idols, Suede, Sleaford Mods. Oh, gosh, the list goes on. Loads of comedians, James Acaster, Ed Gamble, Maisie Adam, Jade Adams... Producers like Butch Vig. Oh, God, who else? What haven't I spoke about? Actors. Maxine Peake, Manda Abington, Joe Hartley, Thomas Turgoose, Michael Smiley. Oh, there's loads. Go and have a rummage in that archive. If that's not enough for you, go check out my Patreon, where you get access to loads of radio shows, video episodes, unreleased episodes. Oh, all sorts of goodies. And that costs you 79p a month, 20p a week. Wow, come on. Right, you can find out about all of this and more at your one-stop shop, www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. Please enjoy today's episode of Off The Beat and Track Podcast with Ali Cook. Sorry, I've interrupted the podcast, but with good reason. Hotel Chocolat are our sponsors. You know that now because I tell you about it every episode. But they've been super kind now. And you may have heard me talking about the products from the cacao bar and there's gins, cream liqueurs, all sorts of wonderful chocolatey goodies. Um, And what they've done is they've set a page up on the website that you can go to. And all you've got to do is just for you off the beaten track listeners, go over there, answer a question, and you could win the full range delivered to your front door. I mean, that's kind of them. All you have to do is go to this place, hotelchocolat.com forward slash OTBT podcast. That's OTBT as in off the beaten track podcast, hotelchocolat.com forward slash OTBT podcast. Go get your grubby little mitts on some deliciously chocolatey drinks, courtesy of our sponsors, Hotel Chocolat. I'll get back to the podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, with him. OK, we are recording. Ali, how are you today? I'm good, yeah. Are you OK? I'm all right. I'm all right. Whereabouts are you today? Uh, I'm in my home in uh, Hampstead, North London. Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. Before we start talking records... Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about home and, and generally being stuck at home um, over the last however many months it's been now. Um, we're recording this on the, the, the 15th of October, so we're, we're out of lockdown and, and, and normal life has resumed somewhat. But I just want to cast your mind back, really, and, and just tell me a little bit how about how you found the last sort of 16 months during lockdown. How you found that both personally and creatively?
2: Oh, that is a good question. Well, it's a weird one for me because I am a self employed performer. So, the idea of never seeing anyone for weeks on end is quite, is quite a common experience, <laughs> so to be honest, on some levels, it was business as usual <laughs> with no work coming in but uh, the, um, uh, but it was it was a very unusual time i mean there was quite a lot happening with me my uh, I actually lost my mum over that period oh, sorry to hear that. um it, it wasn 't due to covid but uh, it was quite a tough time um, however. <sighs> it also meant i could spend a lot of time with her you know yeah, because yeah. we we had more time because we weren't running around everywhere um and then in terms of sort of uh, i i write a lot so um sort of creatively i sort of threw myself into writing a, a, a new a new idea for a sitcom actually um and then also because i do comedy as well um i was doing online shows which are the weirdest thing ever yeah. known to man because basically <laughs> you they sort of the hire you know these sort of corporate jobs you get hired and then um, they just switch everyone on to mute, so you have no idea if people are laughing or you 're dying you have no <laughs>
1: idea I've spoke to I had um I had Maisie Adam on um, yeah. and, and she said she'd done one of them outdoor ones where you in your car where you you yeah. hoot your horn if you're laughing <laughs> that's surreal isn't it <laughs>
2: that was uh I know who was doing those that was a guy called Brett Vincent who's a very known comedy promoter mm. and he'd he'd taken over one of those sort of uh driving cinemas it yeah. was a, an ingenious idea mm. but Yeah, you're storming it if everyone's beeping
1: the horn. It's such an aggressive sound as well, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that's not reassuring, is it? (laughs) That was good. Oh, dear. But the thing, I guess back then we were so thirsty for anything that was close to what what we'd usually do. And if that was going to comedy, you'd you'd take what you could get and there was people doing gigs in that kind of scenario as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, what a bananas time! So uh, it, 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 absolutely
2: crazy time. But everyone sort of um, uh, sort of developed an online act. Yeah, and uh, any uh, one thing that it was quite good for was uh, I always thought it was quite good. I did quite a lot of courses and stuff as well to fill my time. And I feel that like, uh, Zoom and things are actually excellent for learning. Oh
1: my god! Um, you know, uh, really cool. Um, I do. I do think that's a good thing, actually. Well, up until lockdown i mean don't get me wrong i wish just before lockdown i would have heard about zoom and definitely bought shares in it but um it was it was one of them things up until then i'd i'd go to a studio in london i'd try and arrange to get the guests to to you know have time to come and sit all of a sudden this kind of zoom thing which the first few times i recorded like this was like surreal i was like this is weird i've not got that kind of ambience you get in the when you're in a room with somebody talking it was like it felt very strange but quite quickly I think we all adapted didn't we doing bloody yeah. quizzes and god knows what and and what it's done is it just opened it up I think like I've spoke more to my you know my extended family that live overseas than I ever mm-hmm. have and yeah and it's yes. meant that this podcast has I meant I can speak to people all over the world now yeah. rather than Guess that happened to be in London on this certain time, so. a certain
2: day. Yeah, you yeah, know, it suddenly changed it all, didn't it? Certainly in in the work environment, definitely as well. Yeah, it, it yeah, it's no longer seen as like kind of cool, like the, only the cool kids were doing it. It's like everyone suddenly was just doing it. Yeah. And it seemed very normal. Yeah. Definitely.
1: yeah, I mean, does that mean that we are in with the cool kids now? Then I like to think so. Yeah, like wonderful. <laughs> I'm having that alias going on the CV, mate. <laughs> let's talk records let's talk records okay. um yeah. for track one mate i'm going to ask you please to tell me the song that you think's got the greatest ever intro please okay so i have to point out i was obsessed with
2: hip-hop as a child and i think the song of the best intro of all time is a song called beat bop uh, by k-rob and rammel z who turned out to be quite a famous artist in later years and uh, the reason I think it's the best intro ever, there was a documentary on TV years ago called Subway Art, which is when graffiti first started in New York. And then every Monday morning, all these pieces would suddenly appear on the subway trains. And the uh, um, the promo to that documentary, which blew my mind as a, as a 12-year-old, was the start of this song playing as these trains were leaving and going around the city of New York. And I just thought it was this, this sort of slow, it was a slow beat that really uh, encapsulated everything of how cool New
1: York was at that time and how cool hip hop as a new sort of form of music was. So that was it. And I mean, it's that that 808 drum sound, isn't it? That's yes. just yes. glorious. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm 48 and I was probably just into secondary school when hip hop happened. Yeah. And there was one copy of Subway art in our local library, the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, Everybody, It was, like, pre-booked like, for, like, months in advance. And playtime, you know, like, any break at school, we would all be crowding around the one kind of slightly spoilt kid that had a copy of Subway Art. Yeah, and we'd all yeah, be looking, at, yeah. like, desperately trying to get to see graffiti because nowadays, obviously, you can see everything whenever you want. But yeah. back then, like, and oh. the same with hip-hop as well. You could only get what certain, you know, maybe pirate stations or Radio London were playing and... You couldn't really get. You'd get occasional tracks that break through, and they you might see them on top of the pops. But yeah, you had to yeah. really search for any scraps yeah. of hip hop back then.
2: Yeah, you did. And um, so I, I lived in Harrogate in, in Yorkshire, and me and my brothers every Saturday we used to get the train to Leeds, and there was a shop called Crash Records in Leeds. Which was a kind of a, a real record shop for DJs, and they would get imports in. And there was another shop called Jumbo Records, and so we used to go there. And uh, yeah, we would spend thirty quid on a on a twelve inch or an album. And like, I remember buying NWA as on import, and I was like, "Who are these crazy guys?" <laughs> and then I remember playing it, and then my mum and dad thinking, "Oh my god, the the, the lyrics." <laughs> because you got to remember i lived in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere so <laughs> it was this huge juxtaposition sort of being into hard rap music whilst living basically on a farm you know in the middle of nowhere
1: (laughs) but I think one of the things that really appealed about all of that was the fact that it was so different to what we had in the UK and everything they were singing about and the fashion and everything just seemed very exciting and that kind of period in the 80s everything was very focused on the states wasn't it and films and and kind of fashion and and it just felt super exciting and and I mean you mentioned NWA then and and I remember, like, kind of hearing like I. S. T. and N. W. A. and mm. and Public Enemy and stuff like that, and just thinking, "Wow, this is like really aggressive and angry." And my parents, you know, they think it's vile. And and with that in mind, I kind of think that for my generation, like hip hop was kind of our punk. You
2: know? I think it was actually, yeah. That, I think it was, and uh, but it also, I thought. Um... You know, I was 12 listening to Public Enemy and it actually taught you quite a lot about the world because, you know, hip-hop back then was very socially conscious and, uh, yeah, I, I kind of made me a better person, actually. You actually learned a lot about racism, et cetera. Uh, that, you know, growing up in a little town in the middle of nowhere, I'd have no idea what was going on in the world at all. Uh, so it, I think it definitely was... Uh, punk for our generation no doubt about it yeah and also it was just incredibly cool like that you know subway art was an amazing documentary yeah and it was just like it blew my mind you know and everyone I knew we we I was going to say with subway art we used to um uh try and trace the letters yeah. and then copy the letters and then try and do our own pieces. <laughs> but we'd, st- we'd stolen all the letters from the book and then just invented our
1: own name. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, look, um, for track two, I'm going to take you back uh, and I'm hmm. going to ask you, please, like to tell me the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Okay, so this is quite a left turn at the traffic lights.
2: So the first song I remember having an emotional impact on me, was One Man Band by Leo Sayer. Now, that is quite a leap from uh, Beat Bop. <laughs> but my, so my mum and dad, they were heavily into the Beatles, heavily into Leo Sayer, and um, my mum liked Eric Clapton as well. And, but I would say, oh, and, and Simon and Garfunkel. So th- those were the soundtrack of my mum and dad's Cars, Whenever we were going anywhere, and um, I just remember, I remember being in the car, like maybe six or seven, hearing the Beatles. Oh, my mum also liked Blondie as well, and then also hearing Leo Sayer, and it was the song "One Man Band" um, that just really hit me. Um, and I think it was the bit when he's talking about the rain coming down, and that that sort of resonated with me years later, performing at the Edinburgh Festival when it's like a Tuesday night and you're trying to sell out and then suddenly it just rains for six hours and then you're just like, oh, there's <laughs> going to be like no one in. And you've spent all year working on this show. And uh, that, that, that really sort of hit me as sort of how, how brutal it can be being a performer. And then the other thing I love about Leo Sayer is he's kind of nuts, but also incredibly talented like, and, it, and very overlooked. Uh, just an incredible songwriter. And um, was it Roger Daltrey? He wrote that song for, I think, originally, and then he sung it himself later on. That was for
1: Roger Daltrey, really? I think
2: so. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you can, and you can just see the talent. You can, you know, I'm I'm not a musician, but you could just see this sort of crazy talent to come up with a track like that. And then also from a, a hip hop standpoint, I always thought the drum beat could be sampled. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm amazed no one. Uh, like Puff Daddy ever sampled yeah. that's like the only track he never sampled that would have been great
1: <laughs> do you think that's, that's like well. a kind of a, a, a byproduct of growing up in the generation you did that and and, and having a, a you know a love of hip-hop do you think that that kind of tweaks the way that you hear anything groove based now and do you still think oh there's a yes. lovely little sample there
2: yeah I I so I um was a, there were a couple of things that got me like that so uh I used to there was this a rap group in Leeds uh, called Breaking the Illusion, and they actually got into the charts. They got to about uh, sort of uh, the early 30s, like 34, 35, and they'd sampled uh, Golden Brown. And this was a guy who worked in a clothes shop in Leeds, a guy called Paul, who was like a, a mate of ours. And we just loved the fact that he'd sampled Golden Brown, and then, um, then, then we really got into sampling So I had bass and we used to just go and buy... You know, they used to call it rare grooves. So we used to buy people like James Brown, Led Zeppelin. And then that's when I started to realise what good musicianship is. You know, like the drum beats from the drummer in in James Brown, uh, like in the funky drummer, or Led Zeppelin's drummer. You you just suddenly understand, oh, this is genuinely brilliant music. Or, Or the drumming of, say, Phil Collins. He's like, oh, my God, these guys are incredible. And that's and uh, and then the, the hip hop producers they, they weren't idiots they just they genuinely went to the world's best musicians and sampled their stuff mm. and and then also I've, you just start looking for it yeah you just you sort of pick it up and I always thought that was one of those tracks where if the right guy got hold of it, they could have done a really good song out of it.
1: Yeah. So what, you was messing around with, with Cubase yourself? like doing, Oh, doing te- I was
2: terrible at it. I, <laughs> I had no, I had like, I was just like, it was on an Atari ST. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> and just had no no instructions. It was a sort of a final, at this time, I would have either have gone into music or or general performing uh, in the end, I, I went into performing because I just didn't really, I didn't, I didn't have access to say like a music college or anything up up in Yorkshire really at that time. Um, but yeah, I, I used to you know try and make little samples and little tracks and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Did you see the? I mean, I I think it's such an art form, and it, and it and the way that you say, you know, oh, you just found someone else's record and then and then found that little moment in it and, you know, you sample it and loop it. And that's such an art form. And, that, you is, know, that yeah. should never be looked at. Like, that, that's just, no. you know... No, no, um, Creaming off of someone else's talent. That to, to find that and to use that correctly is such an amazing wow. art form. And I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary they made about four or five years ago on, on Public Enemy and, and they've got yeah. the 808 where the bomb squad are there and then all of a sudden they hear Eric B and they're like, oh... There's a new yes. thing happening yeah, Sampling. What's this all about? And like, how yeah. it just revolutionised and and completely changed hip hop. You know, it's like, isn't
2: it? When uh, was it?
1: Chuck D and his producer
2: heard. I know you got sold yes, by Eric yeah. B. and Rakim, and they were yeah. like, "Oh my god, we've got to get better."
1: Yeah, <laughs> like,
2: yeah, it, it, it is. It, I I think that sampling's a little bit like the people who make trailers for movies. Mm. So like, you know, say say you're suddenly landed the latest Star Wars film how do you, you know, condense all of that great imagery into two minutes where people are going to go, Jesus, this is the best film ever, I've got to see it. And I, I sort of think that the people who can sample stuff, that, that's a similar ability. It is not, it's not easy at all. Uh, there's a, and Public Enemy, I mean, uh, uh, sort of tracks like Welcome to the Terror Dome, something like that, the, 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 the sampling within that, and the amount of sampling within that is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. It's a
1: shame because it does mean that some bands that never cleared them samples means you can't get to listen to De So on Spotify. <laughs> oh, is that why? That's three, the
2: reason. I
1: think Three Feet High and Rising, I think so much of it was never cleared, <laughs> so, uh, which is a shame because it's one of the greatest hip-hop records ever made. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, I think maybe you can hear maybe Magic Number but, or, or Say No Go. Um, but that was the reason
2: why I didn't, because I didn't know that. That was, yeah, because yeah, I was trying to find uh, Delosol, and I I was glad I kept the old CD, actually.
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, what, yeah. A, what a record. Yeah. Okay, standing in the formative years for track three, I'm going to ask you, please, to tell me about the song that reminds you of your time at school, please. Yeah, so
2: this, I mean, there's thousands of songs I could choose, but the song that reminds me of my school days is Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, uh, which is... Really, my sixth form years, and this is the year where everyone discovers partying, uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, and uh, and drinking. And I remember this was when Nirvana was just, or maybe a year or two after Nirvana were out, actually. But it was just one of those anthems. Yeah. Um, other anthems at time would be. The other one I was tempted to say was Insane in the Brain by Cypress Hill yep. or All or, or, or Sit Down by Blur when everyone used to sit down on the dance floor. <laughs> and the, and the uh, in Harrogate, there was this really manky pub where everyone used to have their, birth, their 17th or 18th birthday parties and it was a right dive and everyone went down into the basement and there was just like the cheesiest looking discotheque and all they ever played were these tracks. And it was someone else's party every other weekend. And it was just, like, really dingy, but we all loved it. And, um, and, and it's sort of, sort of that grunginess yeah. of uh, Nirvana reminds me of that venue, actually. And when I
1: first started sort of going out. Oh, it's a wonderful intro as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. Uh,
0: selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work, shopify.com work. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com host
1: you know that record happens when it drops because it is monumental so such it, it i think the producer described it as um when dave Grohl's drums kick in it feels like uh, you're in a house made of bricks collapsing on top of you and i think Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Um, Well, tell me about school, Ali. How was it? Mm -hmm. And where was it?
2: Oh, So I went to – I I was very ill as a a child. Uh, I was off school a lot. And so I I went to three schools because of that. So originally I went to – I I grew up in Harrogate in Yorkshire. I went to St. Peter's originally, which was a, a brilliant school, but I got very ill. And so then I, my mum sent me to a private school to sort of catch up, which was a school called Brackenfield, um, which was sort of hilariously posh. And that, <laughs> that was in the dutchy area of Harrogate, which was like the posh part of Harrogate. Um, and then after that, I went to the Harrogate Grammar School, and, which was, um, uh, you, you know, a state school, but a very, very good state school, And I was always one of those people where I had loads of hobbies that were far more important than my schoolwork. But I did all right at school. But but every school report was always, of course he can do it, he just can't be bothered. And that was because at the time, well, firstly, I was a professional BMX racer. Then I got into martial arts. And then I wanted to be a ninja. And then I got into (laughs) magic. (laughs) (laughs) So had these incredible obsessive hobbies that sort of overtook everything
1: it's, basically it's so weird it's like uh, uh, as a young kid i, I mean uh, uh, bmxing just was the most exciting thing i could ever imagine and i and i mm. i had this moment when uh it probably i guess talented the 70s very early 80s where um i'd had a rally boxer and I'd had my eyes set on on the next one up was I was going to go for the rally grifter and I was I'm going to get a grifter and I'd be yeah, yeah. top boy uh, in, in my estate. And I remember going to the bike shop and this guy going to me, look, if your dad's going to spend that amount on you, this thing's called a BMX. You should get one of them. And I was like, how many gears has it got? And he went, none. I was like, leave off. Like I'm having this grifter, mate. Fast forward about four or five months I mean, yeah yeah fuck me all of my mates are doing these amazing jumps and stunts and i've got this cast iron grifter like stuck in red gear and like <laughs> going nowhere fast desperately regretting not having a not having a bmx i was like oh, God, i can't have stunt nuts on a grifter i look shit <laughs> Yeah. That it, it, I mean, in fact when you said that about
2: gears i remember years later with my bmx and uh, you, you would say to your other mates, you were like, "What? Your your bike's got gears?". It's got, right, it's got, you know, like that was a problem.
1: Like, right, 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 okay, yeah, yeah,
2: um, yeah. Well, I mean, I uh, so yeah, because I'm just a, a few years younger than you. So, sort of, my first serious bike was a BMX, mm. actually, and it was a rally. Uh, the first one I ever got was a rally. I can't remember the name of it. It was. Red and yellow with yellow pads on it, and it weighed a ton.
1: Not the burner. Um, it wasn't a rally burner, was yeah, it? Yeah, it
2: was a rally burner. It yeah. was a rally burner. Yeah, yeah. So that was my very first BMX, and we'd seen BMXing on TV. And then my brother got one, and then that was it. um He got a diamond back.
1: Oh, mate, was he more sport? <laughs> <laughs> <That's>... No, <Never> but <laughs> then I came back. In. <laughs> yeah they were
2: an, an exceptional bike so he got one of those and then i there was um a guy called nick who uh, ran a bmx shop in harrogate and then we started racing and then i got what's called a, a jag but they went bust and they were taken over by a company called cw and i had the the, the small cw bike that literally weighed about nine pounds even i could lift it up with one hand mm. and uh I had one in one eight wheels, so I had I had racer wheels from a racer on a BMX for for racing. So I, I didn't I wasn't um I was sort of too young to do freestyle because I didn't have the strength yet. Yeah. Um uh, but I was a racer, yeah. And I did it all around the the northeast, really, uh
1: for most of my childhood, really. Oh, it was yeah. so exciting. I remember like yeah, I I, I live near a a big skate park in Romford that was very famous for for skating and bmxing and, and and our local hero craig campbell he was oh, like yes, he yes, was the yes. golden boy of bmxing he was yes uh, <laughs> yeah that was it yeah gosh i know i remember that name yeah and yeah. um and then you mentioned uh i mean again like the, the, the age difference between us is it's is, is so mad that like for me i'd seen the karate kid and i wanted to learn karate and like so many other kids i learned karate fast forward a couple of years there was this influx of ninja films and all of a sudden yeah. everyone wanted to be a ninja
2: yeah yeah so I, I i was i mean i'm I'm so sort of obsessive when i get into something that i can't i mean the only thing i never really did is i never really was that into normal sport like i played football and mm. rugby and stuff but i was never that into it. i was always more into these fringe things but it was it was a uh, uh Uh, is it something like Golan Globus or something? And they did uh, Revenge of the Ninja, American Ninja. American Ninja. Ninja. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ninja 3, The Domination was the other one. And then there was the Chuck Norris ones. Mm. And then in, in Harrogate, there was this obscure video shop that got all of the worst dubbed martial art films. And the company was called Golden Harvest Productions. And they were, like, the, the dubbing was terrible, but the people who made them were basically martial artists. Yeah. And they really did kung fu, but they all dressed as ninjas. Mm-hmm. And um, so me, so me uh, my middle brother, uh, Jonathan, and then uh, a friend from school, uh, Danny, and another guy called Brendan, we all did karate together. And then we all did other martial arts. And there was a guy who set himself up, who taught ninjutsu, apparently, and uh, we we studied it. And then every year he used to bring a guy over from Japan and we used to do their courses, basically. I mean, I was massively nerdy. Like, I can't, like, there's no other way of explaining it, really. Um, but, yeah, the, I was obsessed with ninjas, obsessed. Oh, they were yeah. the
1: coolest things, weren't they?
2: I mean, yeah, they were so... It, it, it's as if it was made up, but they really were a real yeah. thing. It's like they wore all black, yeah. they looked cool... They had these crazy weapons. Yeah. I mean, um, there was a guy called Stephen K. Hayes who wrote books on ninjas. Mm. And I used to get his (laughs) books. And he, (laughs) he was all like, how, how to use the environment to hide from the
1: enemy. Amazing. <laughs> the fact you're wearing a black roll neck now makes me think any given moment you're going to just drop a smoke bomb and disappear. And like, but I mean, I was definitely one of them kids that we had a martial arts shop in Basildon. Yes. Uh, yeah. that, that I would go to and I would save my money up and buy like a throwing star and then spend like hours finding my garden fence. Just... Exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, I so had, we, go on. Sorry. We, had
2: a, we had a shop called Combat Sports in Leeds. And what I loved about the two guys, the guy who ran it, he was like a former British champion of karate. And what was great about him, he would sell me, my brothers, and my mates anything we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "Can I, can I get this like chain for strangling people? Yeah, no worries. We <laughs> can I have a few throwing stars. Yeah, no, not a problem." <laughs> And the worst thing I ever got was uh, it, my mum took it off me. I got a blow, a ninja blowgun, <laughs> and it was actually on TVAM a week later, and it was outlawed because it had these darts like this long. And even as a kid, I just went like, like not even that strong, and it just went boom, and it just it was absolutely deadly. And it was the coolest toy ever. But my mum said no way. Oh, she was man. like, "This is just." I mean, it was a lethal. It was a. <laughs> It was just a little bit of
1: kick. I'd give him my right arm for one of them when I was a kid. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was probably like ridiculous, endlessly hitting myself in my own nuts with my <laughs> foam nunchuckers trying to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, had, I had some nunchucks. I had mini nunchucks.
2: <laughs> my, my brother had full nunchucks. Yeah. And then the other thing that I got, and I actually found it the other day because I put it on my Twitter. I found a. Uh, I bought a ninja grappling hook for 19 quid. <laughs> <laughs> and what we didn't realise is when he threw it over the branch, what we didn't realise is that it would swing back. Yeah. So the amount of times he threw it over and it just went bang,
1: <laughs> it just whacks you in the head. <laughs> I'm loving your level of commitment to being a ninja. You went all that.
2: Oh, we were, like, it
1: was me, it was, it was
2: me, my middle brother, and then, uh, Danny, And then there was another guy called Charles, Charles Tomlinson. And we used to go down the woods dressed as ninjas. And, yeah, we absolutely, at least for uh, three or four years, we were absolutely obsessed with it.
1: Yeah. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Well, for track four, I'm going mm-hmm. to ask you to tell me, please, the first song you remember buying from a record shop. Yeah, so the first
2: song I ever bought from a record store is Eric B for President. Um by eric b and rakim uh so this sort of is in the golden age of hip-hop and i was a little bit older now so when i first started buying my own records yeah so maybe uh 13 14 and actually it was a we used to go through to leeds but this was a, a record shop in harrogate and i just always remember i think maybe we'd heard maybe we'd heard them on the radio or something um, and then I just went and got the record and, you know, learned it all off by heart. That was the other thing. We used to uh, just put it on on at home and just listen to that same record over and over and over and over again until I got all the lyrics, basically. It was almost as though that's what we thought you did with rap music. We just, <laughs> we just thought that you sat at home and learned it, yeah. almost. Um, and it was. Uh, of course, I didn't I didn't really know much about them, Uh, at all I think maybe a year or two later they came out with paid in full and then that's what made them famous I think Mm. and then they
1: were on top of the pops and stuff like that Um, but yeah that was the first record I ever bought yeah normally this is the one where people really embarrass themselves you've gone in strong that's a that's a decent first record isn't it super credible yeah
2: i mean that that's on the sort of cool front that's not yeah. bad is it
1: it's i'm just bad. picturing you of your little kind of like record bag just walking out of there dressed <laughs> as a ninja skating on your bmx <laughs> oh yeah. wonderful
2: yeah because normally it would be something like yeah it would be like a pop record i guess yeah uh, but you know that that was a cool thing about hip hop though is that when you know when we say we got into sampling it it actually broadened our horizons so you sort of started to realize that um all music's good it's just what genre you're into you know um but uh, yeah no that was a, a
1: great record incredible record in those early years of, of, sort of school and stuff like that like did you know what you wanted to be um mm, uh, I knew what I
2: wanted to be when I was about 16, 17. Uh, but prior to that, no, I, w- I was really into martial arts before that BMX in um, uh, w- really my me and my brother got decks. So we saved up we were the only people we we rang around everywhere saying, Do you have Technic's twelve hundreds? And we f- there was I think it was Maplins in Leeds ordered them for us. And then we went to it. There used to be a shop called Tandy and we got a realistic mixer. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had to get um, an electrician because we had no idea how to set up a proper amp. I didn't even know what an amplifier was. Mm. Um, and we had that all going. But um, it was really so I, I, at that. So up until 15, I, I was just into stuff, but I didn't know what I wanted to be. But when it, it was a little bit longer, that that's when I first started getting into magic uh, which is, again, a, a totally nerdy hobby, but I could do it. For some reason, I could do it. Um, and so I had this idea, either something to do with music or maybe magic. And then I think really what happened was I I didn't have the access to, to know enough about music to really – if I'd have lived in London, say, I think maybe I'd have had more of an idea um, – uh, but yeah, it was really at that point uh, when I was seventeen. I won this uh, the British Championships for magic, and then that's when I thought, "Oh, I can do this hobby as a living." Um, is what I thought. So it was kind of at that age. I thought, "I'll do. I'll be a magician." Originally,
1: what an incredible life to that point! Magic, ninja, <laughs> BMXer, and like turntablist. amazing Yeah,
2: yeah it, it really is like a. It's all, I suppose it's all the hobbies you saw on telly. I yeah. saw of ended up doing them. Yeah. And, uh, but, but, but at the same time, I think I wasn't that good at ball sports. Like I was, I was always all right at cricket or football, but, and I played it with my brothers and my friends, but I, I never, you know, like most boys love footy yeah. It's just like, and my dad played for Leeds Le- City Boys. Like, he was really, like, he had a real shot at it at one point. Yeah. But uh, I don't know why. It's like, I'm never against it, but just never got me going. Yeah. Whereas these sort of nerdy hobbies, I love them. But but to be honest, I think they all stem from being a ninja. Because I think even... Because, <laughs> you know, ninjas were meant to be, like, masters of illusion. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that's also...
1: That's also why I ended up getting to magic. Oh, that's incredible! Oh, wow! I mean, in fairness, like I, I I'm with you. I, I was obsessed with martial arts and obsessed with hip hop and music, and mm. and yeah, I didn't necessarily want to do what all the cool kids were doing. I was far more interested in in them kind of cultures as well. And and my mate had the the realistic mixer. He couldn't. We couldn't afford the. 1200s he had um i don't even know if it was was it a tandy own brand citronic we had two citronic, citronic. decks
2: and <laughs> um, if he had good slip mats he'd be all right i think that's right that's right yeah, yeah. well he yeah,
1: went yeah. on he went on to be the dmc world champ so seriously yeah yeah and uh his name's dj destruction and uh He's
2: serious, yeah. oh my God. He,
1: uh, so he, had, he started off with that exact mixer and he's still got that mix, he doesn't use it anymore. Um, yeah. But yeah, he uh, he went on and he produced, he ended up producing the uh, Chaos album for Adam F and worked on that album. Uh, he's just a lad from my hometown in Essex and yeah, he, on that record he worked with LL Cool J, Buster Rhymes, MOP, Redman, Method Man, Guru, like uh, yeah, he. Wow. Again.
2: I mean, I sometimes regret my choice. I would <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I think maybe because I did. Yeah, he's having that knowledge of um uh, of sort of sampling and stuff yeah. at such a young age, and I used to know all the breaks. I I often wondered. Yeah. May yeah
1: maybe I should have gone down the music route. Do you know what? <laughs> he's he's the only person at my school as well that was a black belt unbelievable was he a black belt as well yeah he was a black god, we'd have got on
2: we'd have definitely got on
1: (laughs) (laughs) he would have been in your crew i got to brown belt i got to brown belt i did i got to brown belt. was it second queue there were three brown belts oh yes there were yes i done wateroo and yeah me too i did wateroo yeah yeah sports karate yeah (laughs) that's it that's it oh (laughs) wonderful i'll tell you what we always had white geese and and every time we go to competitions, and I would have, I was like this sort of tubby little sort of fourteen year old, and and there would always be like this one kind of like uh, karate club that generally come from London and they had black geese and I just thought, wow, I do not want to get matched with one of them, a black gee that just felt badass compared <laughs> yeah, to like yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of Cobra Kai, isn't it? It was yeah. totally Cobra Kai. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, well look, let's move on a few years and I'm gonna yeah. ask you about clubbing. And and for that, uh Ali, can you please tell me the um song that soundtracked your years clubbing, please? Yeah, so the 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 track that was uh you know really the
2: anthem for my clubbing days was Space Cowboy by uh, jamiroquai And uh uh I'm not sure who did that famous remix, but my God, that was that uh that was the track that when that dropped. Uh, night clubbing mostly in Harrogate actually um, that really that was like the ultimate anthem yeah. even years after it came out I would say at least for seven or eight years it was like the uh, I remember like moving to London for about three or four years coming back up to Harrogate and going out and they were still playing Jamiroquai right? <laughs> because that was like the floor filler Yeah, it was just an incredible record and also at this time um uh I met a friend of mine called Jake McDonough, who was an incredible house DJ. He'd gone to a different school to me, but he his ability to mix was like you. He had no idea when the track changed over. He was incredible, and I was like completely like a, a scratcher, and then just drop it in. And I'd never seen I'd never seen DJing like this. And to be honest, I didn't like it. It really pissed me off for about three years. I was like, what is this? What is this This crazy art form? Uh, and then at this point, I thought, I better get some house music and like learn to do what they're doing. And mm. and then in the end, we used to DJ together a bit. It, not, not heavily so, but he mostly played house all night, and then I would do like an hour of hip-hop in the middle sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just remember that... Um, uh, that It was always that Jamiroquai track that was always the one where the, the the room went nuts, just went crazy. And and I think w- one of the other reasons why it was such a good track was it was such a long intro. Yeah. Uh, for mixing, uh, it was a, a, a perfect. It was probably at 126 B- bpm. It was like perfect track to to mix with. Was you a big um, fan of clubbing? Um. Well, I was kind of really square, so. I never got into the whole like proper partying drug taking. I I was the guy who did the driving for everyone else. Because <laughs> I was always like sober. So <laughs> uh so I, I I really loved um uh it I kind of loved dance music, particularly more from the sampling side of things. Uh and we used to drive I would drive everyone to Leeds. And then we used to go to a, a club called Hard Times and one called Mint. And I, saw, I also saw Daft Punk right at the, the start of their first album. Wow. And uh, it was for Leeds University. And I remember seeing them. And it was all backlit with just these two guys behind all these monitors. And I was like, who are these guys? I've never heard. And they, they were the first people to sort of play slower house music, sort of using hip-hop beats and so I kind of loved the scene and I loved the music, but I, w- I was never into the crazy uh, drug-taking thing, to be honest. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, it w- but I never ventured to like Manchester where the scene was massive. Yeah. Uh, I only ever drove through to Leeds, basically.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to drive you back to Leeds and, uh, for track six, and I'm going to ask you to tell me, please, a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please.
2: Yeah, so a favourite song uh, from a home county is uh, Do I Want to Know by the Arctic Monkeys. And I chose this for a few reasons. Uh, one was I didn't want to sn- snow you down with loads of obscure hip hop references. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the reason I like this track, it was the drums again. You know, when I heard the drumming, I was like, and and the the guitarist. I was like, "Oh my god!" And again, I was thinking, "This—if someone sampled this and uh, rapped over it, it'd be immense." Yeah. Um, but I—I—I lo- I, uh, I was very. By the time the Arctic Monkeys came out, I was a full-time performer on the comedy circuit, and I was actually at a university gig, and this girl uh, told me who they were. I—I I, was—I'd kind of lost touch with music. All I did was gigs four nights a week at, all around the country and I was very out of touch with music and she introduced me to them and um, I love that track so much that I did a, a West End magic show called Impossible and I did this section in the show you know when uh, people get in boxes and they disappear and they reappear all over the place so it was me and three dancers and, and we did the whole bit to this track um and so that's that's why i i, I uh, love that track so much really because it
1: reminds me of that show so was there obscure leeds-based hip-hop artists that would have been in the mix otherwise
2: <laughs> i mean uh yeah i mean the the uh the obscure hip-hop artist was my friend paul and uh Breaking the illusion, they were, yeah. But they, they genuinely got into the, the charts. They genuinely did it. They did quite well. Wonderful. And I think he runs some sort of radio station up in Leeds nowadays. So yeah. Um,
1: you, you mentioned uh, I, I I mean to do what what you've done, you know, aside from uh the the ninjutsu, uh, but to then kind of put yourself into something like magic, uh, and then you know stand-up gigs would you say like would you say you're a confident person um uh it's
2: it's a it's a good question that um because i remember doing the first time i did edinburgh the guy who did my lighting and stuff he was like oh my god you're like he first saw me on stage and then when he met me afterwards, he goes, I just thought you were a super, super confident person. Uh, but I don't think most performers are that confident. It's just that you've learned a skill. And one of those skills is the illusions of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, um uh and and also I've been I've been on stage for a long time. A long time. I, I started doing shows sort of professionally when I was 16, 17. And so that you, I, I got used to what they call stage time. So the idea that I might be able to mix genres, you know, I started off obviously as a professional magician, but then the idea of me ending up performing in a comedy club, it was a leap and it is terrifying, but it wasn't a massive leap because I'd already been doing corporate entertainment and stage shows since since I was 16, 17, and, and the confidence just comes from sheer exposure, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so I would say I'm a fairly confident person, but I also do get crippled by nerves before shows. Um, oh, uh, nowadays, it would be with a new show. Um, the, an amazing amount of confidence is really uh, repetition, to be honest. But the hard, the hard thing of, uh, of a performer is when you do something brand new, to be honest. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you can introduce someone to something brand new now. For the last track, (laughs) um, I'm going to ask you please to tell uh, me a song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear, please. Well, I'm almost
2: certain a lot of people won't know this, uh, but I want people to hear this because I think this is uh, a quintessential hip-hop track from the late 80s, early 90s, and this is uh, called Holy War by Divine Force and uh, Jazzy I I first heard this because my brother had recorded it onto a cassette after hearing it on the radio. <laughs> and I was playing this cassette randomly, and the two tracks that came on was Holy War and Gotta Have Your Love by Mantronics. These were these two tracks that I was absolutely obsessed with, one, one being Mantronics sort of breaking through into the mainstream. Mm. And then the other one being this, which was like the ultimate hip-hop song. And uh, it's just this idea of sort of uh, rhyming over a good sample. And then also the, uh, the live scratching, because I think this is a live recording. But if you listen to the DJ and, and the sort of the rapper working in sync with each other, it, it's just quite amazing. And the only time I've ever seen anything else like this is uh, only about three or four years ago, I saw KRS-One came over to Britain. And he did a little concert at the Jazz Cafe. And it was just that real old school rapping just over a breakbeat yeah. with his yeah. DJ just scratch, scratching up the tracks for real on a bit of vinyl. Yeah. Where to actually see those guys who were the masters of it, it, was, just, it was just amazing.
1: Yeah. Have you managed to get to many of them kind of Jazz Cafe shows where they bring over some of the legends? Did you see Big Daddy Kane a little while ago?
2: No, I didn't know he was there. Oh my god, so I was a massive Big Daddy Kane fan. Yeah,
1: I still think he's one of the best.
2: Oh, unbelievable! Yeah, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. But I think one of the nice things about being um, a performer generally is you learn to really appreciate other people in different art forms, and then and uh, one of the things is actually seeing them at little gigs. Um, that that is. Uh, like, I, when I first started stand up, I was middling, what they call middling, because the sweet spot in a comedy club is the middle spot, it's the easiest slot. And at the end of me, uh, I was in a, a student night in Southampton, and they went, Oh, now this guy coming on to uh, Michael McIntyre, and I'd never heard of him. And he'd been going at that point probably 12 years or so. And to first see him in a small club, really rock a room, I was like, Jesus Christ, this guy's good. Yeah. And and then it's the same, you know, I love going to little gigs, even if it's not the sort of thing I'm into. Yeah. Uh, just seeing anyone who's exceptionally good. And, you know, KRS-One, it's like you might not be into hip-hop, yeah. but Jesus Christ, can he rap? I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Absol- so,
1: absolute, dude. Yeah,
2: incredible, yeah.
1: Well, we put together a a Spotify playlist, uh, Ali, to accompany the podcast so people can go and uh, listen to all of your selections. Hopefully the last ones on Spotify. I'll have to check. (laughs) Uh, And uh, and yeah, we'll put on a a few of the other tracks that we've also discussed on here. Um, um, As we sort of start to edge towards the end of 21, uh, you know, hopefully in a far more open and connected manner than, than how the year started. What are you looking forward to? personally from the rest of this year and what's going to be happening professionally?
2: Well, um, I've, I've been very lucky this year. I, um, I landed a, a great acting role um, in a, a new drama coming out um, called Ragdoll. And literally, I came out of lockdown. lockdown and in, in the acting world, you have to do all these self-tapes where you record yourself on your iPhone doing two or three scenes um, from a new TV series or whatever. And the, the poor casting directors, they send these out to literally hundreds of people. And the chances of getting picked are almost like a million to one. And um, I, did, I did one for this new drama and it was so well written, uh, but I didn't think much of it, uh, but I actually got it. I actually got it and I couldn't believe it. And then I started filming from March all the way until the end of August. And um, it's a new thriller coming out in November Uh, called ragdoll basically and it's based on a a best-selling thriller and it's kind of a dark comedy thriller basically uh and i play one of the detectives in it um so that's that's the thing i'm looking forward to seeing it seeing how they put it all together
1: Ah, wonderful and if people want to kind of keep up to speed with that and everything else that you're doing where's the best place to to follow you and keep up to speed with you
2: uh, it's probably on my uh,
1: Instagram, which is Ali underscore Cook. Lovely, Ali. It's been an absolute joy chatting to it, you today. It has been really. Uh, <laughs> I mean,
2: we would have definitely been mates. I
1: think so. Li-
2: literally separated by the M <laughs> yeah.
1: one. Oh, oh, honestly, mate, it's been, it's been a joy. I'll let you. Um, I'll let you throw your smoke bomb and, and, and disappear <laughs> into the night now, mate. Um, thanks loads, Ali. Cheers. There you go. Oh, mate, literally disappeared in a cloud of smoke. Literally just his his, uh, his little hook and rope just left dangling. Pure ninja. Um, Oh, mate, I had so much fun having that chat. like I said at the beginning, no idea this was going to kind of move into uh, the realms of of, of of chat that it did. And that's what I love about this podcast. You know, you kind of do your, your prep, you check your Wikipedias and, you know, you do what you can and, and have a little rummage on YouTube to see what you can find out. And you just don't expect it to kind of take these tangents. And that's what's great. That's when... You know the conversation really starts to roll, and yeah, and and you get a lot a real snapshot of people, um, and this was one of those. It was uh, an absolute delight. So thanks loads, Ali, and um, thanks to you lot for listening. As mentioned at the beginning, if you want to support the podcast, you can do that um, uh, on uh, Patreon, uh, which is Patreon p a t r e o n dot com forward slash Off the Beat and Track. Um, yeah, if you can, that's great. It's about 20p a week uh and yeah and for that you get access to another couple of hundred episodes and all the video episodes and radio shows and yeah weekly content and you support the pod um yeah and anything else you need to know hit up the website off com. aside from that just be excellent to each other and uh, have a lovely week and i'll see you next time love you bye bye It's off the Eat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stew Whipping.